millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jahan Jones. It's your girl, Taryn Finley. And it's your boy, Shaquille Romblay. Election Day came, y'all. It came in and went. It came in and went. And low-key, I feel like Rihanna in the What Now music video. Like, I just don't know. Love. I don't know what the f- <laughs> what's going on. How y'all feeling? Honestly, I know you said Election Day came and it went, but it really felt like it dragged the hell out. And we knew from Jump that this wasn't going to be something where we got a result, you know, the morning after. However... I think that because this year it has been so taxing and because this whole entire presidential campaign season has dragged the hell out, I think we're just ready to pull the Band-Aid off and see who's going to be president. I mean, according to reports, by Monday, more than 96 million Americans had already voted by mail or in person. How do you vote, Jahan? I definitely voted by mail. I told y'all, you can watch me shoot mine from deep like LeBron. I'm pulling up from half court like Dame Lillard to drop mine in, poll watchers or not. Had to be quiet about it, you know, because I don't know if the feds is watching. They might, you know. You know, the feds might be be watching. I mean, yeah. I I mean, I waited in the lines. I waited for about an hour. It wasn't too crazy. And it just, it didn't feel like a circus, surprisingly. Canarsie did a good job. We were in and out. But the line did swirl and twirl a bit. That's good. Are you about to say because nobody lives in Canarsie? You know that's what I was about to say. <laughs> okay, but- I'm glad you. I'm glad you picked up what what I was about to put down. I felt it in my spirit. I have to say, I think uh, we are all kind of the beneficiaries of some good uh, messaging on behalf of like local officials and even some people in the news who let us know beforehand that this was going to be a days long process. And you know, to Trump's credit, he also told us weeks in advance that he was going to claim he won the election before the results were actually put out. And so we were kind of prepared. And what did he do? We were he prepared for that. that as well. Exactly. You gave the game away. Frankly, we already won. Have y'all seen those memes about the mail-in ballots and early ballots coming in? <laughs> yeah, pulling up like, late. Like, some Power Ranger shit. Like, yeah. all right, you thought. Pulling up behind Trump. Yeah. Pulling up for real. I mean, the man is just so delusional because we were doing so well. We were winning everywhere. I mean, the point of the game is to wait until the end. You know, and I think we just had to remind people that he's depressed because the country's future and his future are not linked, you know? So as we're all engaging in this democratic process and voting, this is a person who didn't want people to vote, period. So inevitably, he's going to try to cast the pall on this day and these days that are so really, really supposed to be enjoyable experiences for everyone. You know, we're partaking in this democratic process. Some of us waited four years to do it. Some of us are doing it for the first time. So for the president to try to cast a pall on it just because the outlook looks bad for him, I'm not going to let you rain on my parade, baby. Like I said, I'm pulling up from half court with my with my ballot, right. dropping it in. 
I think what's really interesting is how ingrained in his DNA that this is. There was this video uh, recirculating recently, like within the past um, couple of days. And Hillary Clinton, it was when she was on the debate stage with Donald Trump for the 2016 election. And she was essentially reading off the receipts of the times that he would not concede to failure, Mm -hmm. even though it was really blatant that he was failing. So, and that's not just limited to politics. That's also, you know, when his show didn't win an Emmy three times in a row, like the election, Mm -hmm. all of these things, systems are rigged against him. And it's like, I do not understand how you as a white man who is able to fail up into literally the highest power in the land can honestly sit there and say, and be that delusional and say that all these systems are rigged against mm-hmm. you when these systems were made for you. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, I know y'all been seeing these stores that have been boarding up their damn windows in preparation for some kind of post-election riots. And I just want to say, wow. take these, take this damn plywood off your windows and I hope these people... Ain't nobody these- thinking about you, Rainbow. <laughs> exactly. Ain't nobody thinking about you. Ain't nobody thinking about y'all. You saw in D.C. Um, literally right after um, or like a day after they posted the plywood on the on their windows, mm. a huge wind came and knocked the shit down. That's what you it's deserve. Like, wow, look at that irony. That's what you deserve. See, and I hope these places didn't take into account that this election was going to span over several days. Now you got your poinsettias all dying in the window because you put the plywood up in it. Come back to your dead flowers and plants. So we're going to get into all of that and more, but first we have to introduce our illustrious guest. Joining us today for this special report to discuss the latest in politics, he's a New York Times columnist and CBS News political analyst. He's hailed as one of the defining commentators on politics and race in our era, and he is a former Forbes 30 under 30 celebrant in media. Let's welcome Jamel Bowie as he steps to the mic, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me. So, Jamel, to get us started, bring our listeners up to speed with the election. What appears to be the outcome to you and what is standing out? Going into election night or election day, the expectation was that this was either going to be a total repudiation of the president and his party or they hold on somehow. And it looks like we're getting basically a combination of both outcomes at the top. Biden looks to end up having a national lead of somewhere between six and seven million votes, north of 300 electoral college votes, a pretty decisive win. But below that, the Republican Party uh, is going to retain quite a bit of power, and we will likely go in to January, next January, with divided government. I should say that as a result of counting ballots in Georgia, David Perdue, the incumbent Republican senator, has gone from holding an outright majority of ballots in his race against John Ossoff to less than 50 percent, which means in Georgia that that race is going to a runoff. As well, the other Senate race between the incumbent appointed by the governor, Kelly Leffler, and the Democratic challenger, Warnock, is going to go into a runoff as well. And so on January 5th, we're going to have a double barrel runoff election for the Georgia Senate seats, which, depending on how they go, will mean the difference between a Republican and a Democratic Senate. So, <laughs> right, right. The stakes we're gonna, like, be higher. The poor people of Georgia, which includes much of my family, 
are going to be inundated with like a billion dollars worth of ads between now and then. <laughs> They're going to be swimming in the ad money. Yeah, it's, it's going to be miserable if you live in that state. One thing that I thought was interesting that you said on Twitter was if Biden wins, it will be despite our presidential election system and not because of that. Can you just like explain to the people what that means? Sure. So again, like, like, like I said, Biden is likely to hold a six or seven million ballot lead over Trump when all the votes are counted. That in uh, historical terms is going to be one of the largest popular vote leads since the end of the Second World War. Um, he's going to win 52 percent of the vote, which is a, a historically large share of the overall vote. Um, the margin probably will only be, you know, five or six percentage points between him and Trump. But still, it is difficult and has been difficult for presidential candidates to, to get to 52 percent. Um, and so in a, in, a, in a normal country, if you win 52 percent of the vote, regardless of how those votes are distributed, you win. In a, in a statewide election for governor you know, here in Virginia, if you win 52 percent of the vote, then it doesn't matter that, that if that 52% came entirely from the heavily populated North and the Southeast. It doesn't matter where it came from. What matters is that the votes were legitimate and they were counted and you win. But the Electoral College system is such that it actually does matter where your votes come from. So if you happen to win 52% of the vote, but much of your support or a disproportionate share of your support comes from urban areas... Uh, in red states or even blue states, states that you're probably not going to be able to get, or in the in the case of red states, states where you're probably not going to be able to win a majority of the overall vote, then those votes effectively don't count. They don't matter. It doesn't matter for the outcome. It only matters where the races are very competitive because of the electoral college. And there are people who defend this as sort of a rational system that makes sense. It doesn't. None of the stated reasons people give for the Electoral College that it protects small states or rural states are actually true. All it does is enhance the value of a vote in a state that is closely competitive. And so Florida, North Carolina, uh, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the only thing those states have in common is that they're almost evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, which is why they matter. Yeah, there's no Democratic justification for it. You know, it's funny. It's, this isn't even the system that was designed by the founding fathers. I, I've, I've joked about this, but if we had that system, it would make more sense. Mm-hmm. That in that system, you vote for your electors, and then your electors, who are you know whoever the whoever the hell they are, go on to the state capital and debate amongst themselves who they're going to support. That to mm-hmm. me is much more justifiable than sort of a system where everyone thinks they're casting a vote that matters. But 95% of people are not actually casting a vote that matters. Yeah. Mm. During the 2016 election, you commented that Trump's vision of Black America is a white supremacist fantasy. I want to know how have you seen that play out in this 2020 election? Well, you know, he, you know, throughout this, throughout the election, he kind of had these twin pitches. The first was to um, White suburbanites saying that Democrats want to bring crime and poverty to your front door. They want to build apartment buildings and they want to bring in undesirable people. This to me was all a pretty straightforward dog whistle. And it was very clearly based on this vision Trump has of predominantly black communities in in which in his mind's eye, they are just rife with crime and disorder that anything that might 
bring people who live in one of those communities to a suburban community, which in his mind is more or less lily white, picket fences, that kind of thing, is to be um, opposed. In reality, of course, uh, predominantly black neighborhoods and cities are not you know, dens of crime. Suburbs themselves are far more diverse than they were a generation ago. Um, so the whole the whole sort of construct is off. And so that was one pitch. And then the other pitch was to black voters. And it was a version of the, you know, what the hell do you have to lose pitch that he made in 2016. And like that 2016 message, it is also based on this idea that black communities are so terrible or so crime ridden that you have nothing to lose and everything to gain from supporting Trump. You kind of saw, and this, this, this is, um, you know, both Biden and Trump did this to an extent during the debates. But you'll notice that whenever you know issues concerning Black Americans came up, it was always in the context of either you know protest or incarceration, and so that was sort of like the the paradigm for talking about. Black issues, which creates the impression that this is the only thing Black people care about. You know, are we incarcerated, um, and what are in, in the nature of our encounters with police? And those things are, are obviously very important, but they're also not the only things Black communities care about by a long shot. Black communities care about everything other communities care about, <laughs> right. um, uh, and to reduce it to basically just crime. Um, is to again reinforce this this idea that the crime and punishment and incarceration are sort of the things that define black life, which to me is just a, a racist way of thinking about black people. Do you think Democrats have a way forward to kind of gird against that kind of racist rhetoric that seems to have to see to earn some tangible returns for Republicans? The conventional wisdom for a long time with regards to sort of modern national elections is that you could no, you could not be more than one thing to many people. That because of the nature of national media, if you say something to one group of people, it's going to be recorded. And if it's going to be recorded, it's going to be broadcast. And that kind of cuts off your ability to write, be a different candidate for different groups of people, which wasn't the case prior to the emergence of a national media for you know your grandparents for you know my grandparents for if you're older than 60 years old more or less or older than 70 maybe is a better age cutoff it was possible as a national politician to go before a crowd of people in one part of the country say one thing and then maybe not completely contradict yourself but say something very different to a different crowd of people and because there was very little chance those distinct groups of people will ever come in contact with each other or that the media that they're hearing, say, in Georgia is going to be heard in Seattle, that you could be different things to different people. And this sounds sort of dishonest, but it was actually kind of an important way for politicians to appeal to voters on the issues they cared about and to keep things relatively low polarization, that you could kind of play this game across. There's always some consistency, but you didn't have to be too consistent. And I think this was kind of important. You can sort of see it on a local level, too, in elections where there isn't that much uh, participation, people aren't paying that much attention. It gives politicians space to kind of say different things to different people. So that was the conventional wisdom. 
the strange thing about Trump, and I kind of alluded to this, is that he doesn't do this, right? He, in one breath, says, the blacks are coming to your neighborhood. And the next breath says, <laughs> I'm going to be the best president for black people who ever lived, right? Mm-hmm. And that right. on a national stage, he is giving mutually exclusive appeals, pitches to different groups of voters, and they buy it, right? It doesn't turn mm-hmm. people off. But, but why is that? Like, how is it that his base can receive his messaging and not be turned off by the inconsistencies in those messagings? That's a very good question. Uh I don't really have an answer as much as sort of like a bunch of observations about what an answer might be. <laughs> One such observation might just be that his voters, his supporters, think of themselves as sort of savvy media consumers and are sort of reading between the lines. But to go to this question of Democrats, what the Democrats do, I think the the Trump thing of saying all things to all people in each kind of segment of people believing the thing they want to believe mm-hmm. um, is a thing you might be able to replicate, right? That you don't necessarily have to be super consistent in all of your messaging. So you can, as a Democratic candidate, perhaps go to Michigan and say to a bunch of hard hat working class white guys, you know, stuff that directly appeals to them, not just stuff about wages and healthcare, but sort of you know, cultural appeals to them. And then go to Detroit and speak to a black audience and make cultural appeals to them and not worry about contradicting yourself because it appears that voters don't care. And if voters don't care, then say what you need to say to whoever you want to say. It's a cynical answer, but it's sort of that appears to be the solution to the problem. That's kind of the art of the job, too. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as I think about that, I just think about to the Trump base, they almost see him like a godlike figure. And maybe this is because of the celebrity persona that he's developed. And you write about and you write about this in your latest column where you said that many waited for a repudiation that never came and how the Trump administration has often been extremely generous to the wealthy, but stingy to the poor. And Trump has consistently created policies that is harmful to the people who largely go out and vote for him. But his performance is still amazing. We see that he has the most votes than any Republican presidential nominee in history. Just how? <laughs> like, I just don't. It, it doesn't make sense. It, I just don't get how. I, I think. I mean, I think you do, man. You you mentioned that he has a celebrity, and I I, I think I think so much of this is just a celebrity. This guy was on TV for half a decade, playing a rich, successful guy. And for half of the people who encounter him in politics, that's what they think of. They think of the rich, successful guy. They see someone who is, you know, a a huge business success, who has tons of money, and they 100% believe his depiction of himself as someone who is sacrificing something by going into politics. Now, in reality, we know that Trump is deeply in debt. Mm-hmm. That the apprentice, the image of the apprentice was an image. It was constructed that at the time he took the job, he was actually desperate for cash and that his business history has been sort of one failure after another. But he has, to his credit, been very successful at showing himself to be, you know, this titan of industry, more more Steve Jobs than, say, like, I don't know, 
I can't name a failed businessman because no one remembers failed businessmen <laughs> other, other than Trump. I know that before he ran for president, a lot of rappers were a big fan of his and they would write, you know, make songs up like Donald Trump. And we still see that a lot of rappers are a big fan of his. Do you think that a lot of this also has to do with some of the branding that he's developed around himself? You turn on like a, a Spotify station for 90s hip hop and just like listen to it and Probably within the hour, you're going to hear someone rap about Trump. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. Like, Trump's image as a rich, successful guy is, I'm 33. It's older than I am, right? It's sort of, it's old, it's, it's older <laughs> than, it's 40 years old. Yes. And it kind of seeped into the culture. I recently rewatched uh, Home Alone 2, which has a cameo <laughs> from Donald Trump. He shows up as, like, a, a, hotel, a hotelier who helps Kevin McAllister get to where he's going. Like, he's... That's been his image for so long. And so I think with the, with rappers, I mean, I think they're just, they're doing the same thing that so many people are doing and substituting or mistaking the image of Trump for the reality and kind of, you know, embracing that image. And in terms of, you know, a guy like uh, uh, 50 Cent or, or Cube or whatever, eh, less so Cube, um, but like, I just listened to Get Richard Die Try and comma again. <laughs> just, okay. Just there's there's no there's no sequel to that record. Yeah, we were um, waiting right. to try to drop for. I get it. Uh, I get it. <laughs> so I I just listened to that record, and it's like the guy on that. Re- I could easily imagine the guy in that record being sympathetic to to the image of Donald Trump. Easily, it's, like, it's not it's not hard. It's not really a crazy thing. Mm-hmm. And 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 for them, they're doing that thing we just talked about, right? That they hear the racist stuff, but they say, yeah, whatever. That's not the stuff that counts. The stuff that counts is Trump, the successful guy, Trump, the rich guy, all of that. Thank you. Even when literally even the when- poster boy for white men felling up. Right. Yeah. It's funny. You even see it with reality TV stars because Nene Leak's most iconic quote is I was in the bank getting Trump checks and she wasn't getting Trump <laughs> checks. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> we have some cultural stand power, but even like you said, Jamel, with people like Ice Cube, he's not totally misaligned with Trump's, like, even his anti-Semitism. If you go back and listen to some of Cube's early stuff, he was using some fairly Trumpist rhetoric to describe Jews at the time. So even some of these figures, if we were to, like, delve into their work, I feel like we would see some, like, to your point, some similarities between yeah. them and Trump. It, it's, 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 you're right about Cube, but on the, on, this, on, the, on the other side, Cube did write true to the game. So it's sort of like, I don't right. know. Yeah, there's <laughs> clear contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which Cube that we got here. Cause I, you know, true to the game, that's not the Cube that's going to vote for Donald Trump. But right, yeah. right. He's yeah. had some, he's had the, phases. The evolution or devolution, rather, of a lot of these rappers <laughs> has been really um, interesting to watch. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return more with Jamel Bowie on what was undoubtedly the craziest presidential campaign and election of our lifetimes, and what it all reveals about America. And that's that. Stay with us, folks. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. 
Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Another thing that I think is interesting is the juxtaposition of both candidates' um, comments since election night. You know, on one side you have Biden saying, you know, we're going to unify this country if I win and it's not going to be red states or blue states. It's going to be United States of America. And then on the other side, you have Trump, you know, on election night, he was just so um, convinced that he had won and convinced that, you know, things were looking on his favor. But then we see the next day, you know, where Biden pulls into the lead and the whole story just changed and it became the election is rigged. Stop counting the votes, count more of the votes, depending on which state you're in. Oh, I'm going to go ahead and, and, um, and do uh file this lawsuit in Nevada and all of these things. It, it's, it's, uh, it's very maddening. I'm wondering uh, how you, how destructive Trump's messaging is to the democratic process. You know, if, if, um, if Republicans had taken that stuff seriously, I think it ended up being very destructive. And I guess you could say in some way, just the president saying it is inherently destructive. But it's also, and I think this is very interesting, it's also clear that the Republican Party just, you know, they they, they came away from Tuesday night. They saw that Trump, maybe he would win, but he seemed to be on a path to lose by Wednesday morning. And it seems as if they all said to themselves, Okay, he's going to be gone soon. It doesn't matter anymore. And I think that's I mean that that to me is the takeaway that the extent to which no no one else in the Republican Party other than Trump's allies, like direct allies and you know biggest supporters, no one was saying yes, we're going to sue, yes, we're going to do these lawsuits. Everyone was like, "Yeah, let's just count the votes and see what happens." That to me says that they know they they know the game is up, that you know this is done. And from their perspective, honestly, why wouldn't you just let him go, right? Like, you get rid of this unpopular guy at the top, you keep all the stuff you have below that, and you just wait four years. I mean, it's if, if, I'm, if I'm Mitch McConnell or if I'm Kevin McCarthy in the House, I look at Trump losing and I say – this is actually the best outcome for us. Right. You've yeah. been using yeah. him as a tool this whole time. Yeah. But also it it's really scary, right? Because he's made these threats of, you know, not, you know, fairly succeeding. What happens if he loses and a peaceful transfer of power isn't on the table? Well, if he loses in this so again, so much depends on what other Republicans do. So if he clearly loses and then Trump says, I'm not going to leave, then if other Republicans say, well, we're going to join with them, then <laughs> then we have a lot of trouble. Then, 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 then there's a problem. <laughs> but if they're if they if he says, I'm not going to leave and, and like Mitch McConnell's like, who gives a fuck? I don't care. <laughs> right. Um, Is that your choice? Is that a choice? Then, then that's the that's kind of the ball game. Trump can say as much as he wants; he's not going to leave. But on January twentieth at twelve p.m., his term's up. Right. Someone's coming to the he, door. Twelve oh one happens. He's just some guy in the White House now. <laughs> he's a squatter. He knows how evictions go. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what what do you think 
happens on a social level because people are already protesting, right? Some are saying, keep counting. Saying, some are saying, stop counting, right? So there's already a division and the country right now is so divided. So I see people protesting if Biden wins. I see people protesting if Trump wins. What do you see happening on a social level? I think we're still going to be in this sort of stalemate. I think the thing that is so distinctive about this outcome or how it's looking is it's so inconclusive that what 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 one side was hoping for was this decisive repudiation, right? That we would wake up on Wednesday and Biden will have won by double digits and Republicans up and down the ballot would have lost and it would have been the American people saying, enough of this bullshit, we're done. But that didn't happen. And the, the the reverse that, you know, the a country would scream MAGA and, you know, give Trump a decisive win for a second term didn't happen either. And so we have this inconclusive result. And I think what's just going to happen is we're going to it's going to be more of the same. We're going to kind of be stuck in the same rut. I called it in my column trench warfare. And that's what it feels like. Right. Mm-hmm. You move an inch one way, an inch another way. Um but there's no real movement at the end of the day. And I think that's where we are. And so I, I would expect in a Biden you know, administration, we're going to have a lot of protest, a lot of discontent, because not only will there not be that much ability to actually do anything, but we'll all have this knowledge that no one side is actually big enough or strong enough to beat the other, which is almost sort of worse, right? Because if you know that you're going to lose and you can you can kind of adjust to that and you can kind of build a strategy around that. And if you think that you have, if you have the majority, if you represent, if you're the winning side, then you can work from that too. But if both sides are convinced that they can maybe win, mm-hmm. then no one has any incentive to do anything differently than what they're doing. I also have to talk to you about the Latinx vote, and you write about that in your latest piece as well. So a lot of people had this view that a lot of Latinx voters were consistently liberal. However, we've seen a shift of some of them to conservative. However, as you know, the term Hispanic is just too broad. What are the negative implications of a group of people being fit into this one category as voters? So I I think a useful way to think about this is through analogy to like 100 years ago. A hundred years ago in 1920, you would not have referred to every person of European descent in the United States as a white person. Not really. Like mm-hmm. that would if, – if a guy from New England were to come across a bunch of Italians, he might be like, yeah, I guess they're white. Like I get, I guess they count. <laughs> right. But he would more likely be like, no, they're Italians <laughs> and they're not – we're not the same. And would walk on the other side of the street, maybe. Right. <laughs> and so the emergence of, you know, a collective white person that includes Italians and Russians and uh, Jewish Americans and uh, various flavors of Eastern European, that was a process that took 30 or 40 years, right? It wasn't true in 1920. It wasn't really true in 1930. It was kind of true in 1950 because of the Depression and the Second World War and through these big collective experiences among large groups of Americans of European descent kind of helped form them into a single group. Um, a movie a movie like The Godfather and The Godfather 2 are kind of a dramatization of exactly this process for one particular family. You can watch them that way. Um, and in a kind of similar way, we have – 
a bunch of Americans, millions of Americans from Latin America and Mexico. And they are of different racial backgrounds, different national backgrounds. Within groups of varying national backgrounds, you have Anglo-descended people, you have African-descended people, you have indigenous-descended mm-hmm. people, right? You have the same um, uh, diversity of people in the United States within a country like Mexico, within a country like Guatemala, within a country like Venezuela. And so although we in politics we, we've been speaking of these voters as a singular Hispanic group, mm-hmm. anyone who actually you know belongs to this group does work, uh, po- political work among Hispanics um, will tell you that it just doesn't make any sense to refer to them collectively as like a singular block of voters because mm-hmm. they're just so different and diverse. And that diversity has real political consequences. Everyone's familiar with how in Florida, right, the Cuban-American population yes. is much more conservative than, say, the Puerto Rican population in Florida. Yes. In Texas, which used to be Mexico until, you know, 150 years ago, uh, fourth-generation Mexican Americans in Texas vote like any other Texan. They vote like white Texans. Just because they're Mexican doesn't all of a sudden mean they have more liberal politics. And you kind of see this divide all over the place that kind of depending on where they come from, on the national origin, depending on their relationship to immigration, depending on so many things, different groups of quote unquote Hispanic voters are just going to behave differently. I think this election should be a reminder to us that. We cannot lump this group together as a singular group, that we have to be more careful when we're thinking and talking about Hispanic voters. Campaigns have to be much more um, specific and targeted in how they approach Hispanic voters. Um, and it, we're just I think we're just going to have to like reorient ourselves to thinking of this group to the extent that we that we use the term Hispanic or Latino or Latinx. We also have to caveat just how diverse the group is and um, how that that really does matter. And so what you're looking at is just like different, you know, different groups of people with different origins acting differently. It's not really – it shouldn't be a surprise. It's just that I think that what's happened is that for a bunch of reasons, understandable and, and some less so, uh, political – uh, observers have been analogizing Hispanic voters to black voters. Black voters are just sort of, we exist in like a different category precisely because, you know, because of our history, we are much more of a singular community. We had, we have had this more singular experience and that, that is shaping. We do have these more singular institutions, which are shaping our political behavior in a way that isn't really true of any other racial group. It's true of like subgroups, like white evangelicals are very Republican in a way that's similar to how black Americans are very Democratic. But there's no other racial group for whom you could say the same. Yeah, I think that like, though there is this singular experience, you know, we aren't a monolith. Right. How much does America owe black voters? Well, you know, I'd say that the... The anti-Trump America, at the least, owes black voters a good deal, right? If Biden ends up pulling it out, it will be because of voters in Milwaukee and it will be because of voters in Detroit and Atlanta and uh, Philly. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be black voters in those states, in those cities who end up making the critical margin. 
Um, how that actually plays out in terms of policy remains to be seen, I think. The other thing, though, and this, I mean, this is this is interesting. Trump, I think, he isn't going to change necessarily the percentage of black voters that a Republican presidential nominee wins, which kind of, depending on the year, is at a low end. Like, the lowest end was Romney in 2012 when Romney won, like, <laughs> Five percent of black voters, sort of, right. you know, just a, the worst performance of a Republican ever. But he is going to change the composition of that percentage. It's going to be fewer black women, more black men. That's kind of that's where the change is going to be, and it's going to be kind of up and down the age range. And so that that the movement happened. There's evidence that there are segments of black voters who are becoming less attached to the Democratic Party than their parents and grandparents were. One thing that I find very interesting, and this is based on some recent research from um, a a group of black political scientists in several different books, is that, you know, if you you think of what, what, one of the institutions that helps shape black identity, sort of the degree to which any individual black person really identifies with being black, is the church that for for millions of black americans that's sort Mm -hmm. of like that's their entryway into learning what it means to be a black person i can say for me that was mine i grew up going to church every sunday a black church Mm -hmm. sort of like it's an important part of my development as a person right right um and we also know that part of kind of black political identity which is kind of an offshoot of black identity is this commitment to to the group to the group's uh success and right now, that kind of just means for many black voters, that means voting for the Democratic Party, not necessarily being Democrats, but sort of like of the two parties, they're the ones who aren't going to screw us too badly. And so you can, there's sort of this connection, and it's there between, and, and kind of the, if you're going to plot it out, it would be like go to church a lot, have a stronger attachment to black identity, have a stronger attachment to black collective gains in politics more likely to vote Democratic. That's like the line. Mm-hmm. Among the youngest group of Black Americans, church going is sort of on a steady decline. Not as steady as it is with white Americans, where like the youngest white Americans just basically don't go to church. Um, and so those that do tend to be very, very conservative. Among Black Americans, it's going, it's, the decline is happening a little slowly, but it's happening. And among Black, young Black people who say they don't have, they don't, really go to church, you find less of an attachment to traditional black black identity and less of a willingness to vote for Democrats. Like it's 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 kind of very it's a very linear thing happening. That does change things up a bit in terms of how the parties relate to the to, to black voters. You're gonna have more party competition for black voters, I think, in the future because of these like underlying trends and just religiosity and church attendance and identity mm. shout out to uh leah wright rigor because she's done a lot of work uh, yes she's the author of the loneliness of the black republican which i kind of think of as a warning to progressives about the ways that they could lose right. the black vote if they don't great book let me let me change. also uh shout out tasha philpitt who wrote a book called conservative not republican about black conservatism um and then um uh, Cheryl Lard and Ismail K. White, who wrote Steadfast Democrats, which is about black political identity. Righteous, righteous. 
uh, before we let you take off, we just want to know how you have been personally coping with this time. What kind of things have you been listening to to carry you through the election? What kind of things you've been watching? You know, yes, put us on. I've been, I've just, you know, I, I've been uh, trying to get the better at a reasonable hour, um, and kind of trying to as much as possible go about not not obsessing over what's happening, like recognizing sure. mm-hmm. that my obsessing does not change anything. It just sort of stresses me out. True. Right. So uh, I've been. Uh, my wife and I have been making our way through every legal thriller we've never seen. Okay. So we're watching Dark Waters right now. I'm watching Michael Clayton. Um, and uh, we just watched Amistad, which is a weird, bad movie, but it's still kind of worth watching. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and we watched um, uh, A Time to Kill. It's a Buck Wild movie, and you should watch it. <laughs> um, gotcha. So I've just, we, just been watching movies and kind of keeping up my normal schedule. I have a toddler, and so that kind of helps... There's only like the toddler has a schedule, and so I kind of have to make sure I'm on the toddler schedule, or I'll just have a t- terrible day. Gotcha, um, gotcha. Yeah. The calming presence of a toddler. Right. I mean, weirdly, <laughs> yes. Like having yes, having a course. toddler kind of impose discipline. Yeah, um, yeah, is helpful. Righteous, righteous. Well, thank you so much, Jamel. Thank, thank you. you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank y'all. No, this is a lot of fun. All right, y'all. And that's that for this week. Thanks again to our guest, Jamel Bowie. Our show is produced and edited by Izzy Best, Sarah Patterson, Becca D, Greg Oreo. And a special shout out goes out to our producer, Nick, who found love in a hopeless place, Offenberg, and his bride, Sarah, who got married this week. Give them a shout out, y'all. COVID weddings, COVID weddings, COVID weddings. We love to see it. Many mazels to them both. I'm Jahan Jones. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Jahan. I'm Taryn Finley. Y'all know where I'm at, underscore tearing it up. And I'm Shaquille Romblay. And follow me at R to the O to the M-B-L-A-Y. Romblay. We'll be back next week. Until then, keep it juicy. Juicy I never get over that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.